Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Rosalba Courtney. Rosalba is an osteopath, researcher, author, and teacher. She has a PhD on the topic of dysfunctional breathing and breathing therapy and has published widely in the scientific literature and contributed to various textbook chapters. Rosalba is passionate about both the art and science of breathing. She believes that breathing combined with movement, mind-body techniques and other health practices has enormous potential as a tool to heal the mind and body. She is actively involved in ongoing research on broad topics related to breathing and health. Rosalba has developed a system called Integrative Breathing Therapy based on the models and tools she developed during her PhD and subsequent research. She has trained health professionals from many disciplines including physiotherapy, psychology, speech and language pathology, osteopathy and integrative medicine in the theory and applications of breathing therapy for their field. She is currently developing her first online certification course in the foundations of integrative breathing therapy for health professionals. Rosalba really has done the foundational work that has contributed greatly to the understand of breathing's role in health and wellness. Her PhD work and subsequent publications have inspired those who are now synonymous with breathing practices. She identified first that breathing must be thought of in terms of biochemistry, biomechanics and psychophysiology. This concept is now widely used but not always credited to her. Rosalba is someone whom I greatly admire and I'm very grateful she has done so much hard work exploring this issue, particularly as breathing disorders are becoming more prevalent yet remain largely unrecognised. So with all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. So thank you for speaking with me today, Rosalba. I've really been looking forward to this. Um, You were involved in um, the book uh, that I mentioned to you before. Um, that I think is really one of the the primary works that I think people should look into. So um, I was wondering how you got into looking at at breathing um, uh, from from an osteopathic uh, point of view. Um, I didn't necessarily get into it from an osteopathic point of view. So my background is that I've been um, in practice for about 45 years as an osteopath, naturopath, acupuncturist, herbalist, and sort of I trained back in the 1970s and was just interested in healing and how the body heals and what happens when, you know, people aren't healing. And that sort of, when I had patients who I couldn't help, I would just keep looking. And so I had a few patients who had sort of unusual breathing disorders um, that no one seemed to be able to help terribly well. You know, I had um, one case of a, of, of a guy who really, he thought he inhaled a bug and he had a lot of breathing distress. And it turned out that his girlfriend had left him and um, he'd lost his job and he'd had a whole lot of stress and trauma. And so he was having difficulty breathing and was attributing it to a bug, but it was really to do with you know, the way his brain and nervous system was throwing his breathing control system out of whack because breathing's very sensitive to, you know, psychological and emotional influences because breathing's always trying to make us, you know, um, adapt to the chain, internal and external changes in our environment. So it's kind of a sensitive system to all kinds of things. And uh, then I had a few other patients with, you know, severe asthma and different bits and pieces. And um, 
I took some time out of my clinic to um, be with my second child. And uh, so that would have been 30 years ago because that child is now 30. And I, in those days, I stumbled across the Biteco method. And so I became, um, ended up, you know, training the Biteco method, went to Russia, met Biteco, became chairperson of the association and wrote the first training courses around the world. And this is in, in about 1994. And, um, but the more I looked into it, the more I realised that Biteco had, you know, limit, lots of limitations. It was a little bit cultish and a bit of a sort of narrow view, really, of what breathing was. Yeah. And so um, I, I just had lots of questions. So even though I was working with patients and training practitioners and really interested and into it, I realised that actually there was more to this than I'd first um, understood. So I decided to stop teaching for a while and I just went back and I did a, a PhD. So I did a PhD, in, which took me eight years. It wasn't meant to take that long, but that's how long it took. And I just, you know, asked some of the questions and I designed research to answer those questions. So I repeated some of Bateko's research, looking at, you know, the, um, the correlation between, you know, breath-holding time and carbon dioxide. And, um, and what I... What, what I got out of that was a whole model, you know, of dysfunctional breathing. So I finished my PhD in 2012 and I actually published seven research papers in that time yeah. and, um, you know, came up with a model of, of dysfunctional breathing, which was this multidimensional model, which a few people have sort of used without, sometimes without acknowledging me, like... Um, but, you know, that model was sort of based on research. So what I did was I gave people a whole bunch of measures that were being used for dysfunctional breathing. And then I looked to see how those measures correlated. And what I found was that the measures didn't necessarily correlate across dimensions, but they correlated within dimensions. So the three key dimensions were biochemical mm -hmm. to do with carbon dioxide, hyperventilation, yep. CO2, <clears throat> oxygen even. And then the other dimension was biomechanical to do with the muscles of breathing and the feedback from the muscles of breathing uh, to the breathing control system. Right. And then there was a um, third dimension, which was the psychophysiological. So people could have breathing disorders, breathing symptoms, strange breathing patterns and their carbon dioxide be normal, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So Bateko's whole model was that hyperventilation is the cause of all diseases and 90% of people are hyperventilating. Right. And, you right. know, that, so there was this, the whole sort of model there. And um, so I, I, what, what I wanted to do was to sort of find out the truth of all that, you know, like what's actually going on here. And so out of that, I just developed a whole kind of way of looking at breathing which include that three-dimensional model yep. also a um sort of a definition of what is functional and dysfunctional breathing yeah so you know it used to be that people only talked about hyperventilation and then in about the late 90s 
they realised that people who had symptoms of hyperventilation weren't necessarily hyperventilating. They didn't have low CO2. So then in the late 90s, this you know, term called dysfunctional breathing started to be used. So, um, you know, my PhD, a big question that I asked during that PhD was, okay, if there's something called dysfunctional breathing, then what is functional breathing? Mm -hmm. And what I came up with was like, dysfunctional breathing is not just hyperventilation, mm -hmm. you know, but dysfunctional breathing, to me, I went, okay, so dysfunctional breathing, it's breathing that doesn't fulfill its functions. So what are the functions of breathing? And it's like, oh, well, there are primary functions, you know, which have to do with maintenance of blood gases and the respiratory pump, you know, the, the movement of the rib cage and the muscles of breathing. And then there's a, um, they're the primary functions of breathing, but then there are secondary functions of breathing to do with, you know, the way we use breathing for self-regulation or secondary functions of breathing would be to do with, you know, voice production and, um, you know, sound. Mm. And then there's also breathing is a rhythm. It's an oscillating rhythm that um, is influencing other rhythms within the body. So it's a sort of a, it's a driver of oscillations and which are really important for homeostasis, which is the body's ability to maintain stability in the face of change and, and, and so on, you know. So it's like, I went, okay, so dysfunctional breathing is breathing that doesn't do that. So then how do you measure that? So clinically, what's the practical, what are the practical aspects of that? So how do you measure um, someone with dysfunctional breathing. And so what, what I did in my PhD was just, I developed tools and measures. So I developed, um, you know, a protocol for measuring dysfunctional breathing um, that looked at three dimensions, the biochemical, the biomechanical, the psychophysiological, based on what was in the research literature, in the whole body of literature yep. about breathing, you know, over the, over the years. And ideas had really changed. So it's very interesting to watch how ideas change over time. And um, <clears throat> so anyway, the, 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 the model that I came up with was just sort of gave me sort of a way to practically and pragmatically measure people's breathing um, and then adjust treatment, you know, to their, to their individual needs and their individual type of dysfunction and then to re-measure at the end to see, have I made a difference? You know, what else does this person need? <clears throat> and then to try and give appropriate type breathing, you know, therapies or other things that would help to improve that aspect of breathing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, that's a big story, but that's sort of it in a nutshell. Yeah, well, I, you ticked yeah. off a few of the other things that I was going to ask yeah. you straight away, okay. but yeah. I, I guess I just want to get, um, <clears throat> you know, a, 10,000 foot view on what, mm. what functional breathing looks like. What, what, what does optimal, what does an optimal breathing pattern? It's look variable like? for a start. Right. Okay. It's variable. It's not, it's not a static thing. That's just breathing parameters. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's not just breathing at a particular speed or depth or, um, <clears throat> you know, always with your belly and your lower rib cage. So 
Functional breathing is just breathing that helps to maintain your health. So it would be breathing that um, is appropriate for you given what's going on with you. So functional breathing in someone who has a respiratory disease Mm -hmm. would look, or a cardiovascular disease would look different to functional breathing in someone who's healthy. Okay? So you would expect a person in normal health to have normal breathing parameters. Mm -hmm. But then people who are very anxious or depressed or this or that, their breathing will reflect what their body is telling them needs to happen, you know, for for homeostasis to occur. Um, And very often what I see, because in the breathing therapy world, there are a lot of people who, some of the leaders in the field don't even have a medical degree, Mm. have no training. So they kind of work off ideas or pushing a particular therapy. And I think this does the whole field a disservice because it's kind of nuanced, you know. And what I see is that... A lot of times people who are anxious and whose breathing has become, you know, difficult, they might know that they can sort of slow their breathing and feel a little bit better. Yeah. And so what they start to con- to do is to over-control their breathing, you know, all the time mm-hmm. because they have this idea that there's this sort of, you know, a perfect way to breathe, mm. you know. So... Having come from the Botteco world, you know, the whole idea is that everyone should be breathing less. Okay. And actually some of the most powerful breathing techniques involve breathing strongly Mm -hmm. in a vigorous way because breathing heals in lots of interesting ways, not just through correcting CO2 or calming the nervous system. Sometimes, I mean, you're seeing out there in popular... um, you know, popular breathing techniques, you'll see such a diversity Mm. of approaches, you know, and it's, they're all right and they're all wrong. Yeah. Because to really use breathing as a healing tool, you know, in people who are sicker, you need to understand it deeply. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't just throw the same technique at everyone. Yeah. And expect it to work. Or have rigid ideas about what perfect breathing is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, that's a great point. That's something I hadn't really considered all that much. Um, you know, the idea that there are going to be exercises, there are going to be patterns that, are, that you know, are going to help different people at different stages. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's a really important thing to understand that uh, mm-hmm. really what we want our breathing to be is uh, dynamic and able to a- adapt to our, our yeah. what, we're, what we're doing in flexible. our life. Flexible. Fun- anything that's functional is flexible. Yeah. You know, that would be kind of a key point, mm. really. And, I mean, most people can do with slowing their breathing down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And most people can do with relaxing their breathing muscles, do you know. And um, there are a lot of people who hyperventilate out there and there are a lot of people who are just putting way too much effort into breathing. But you can't, it can't be, um, breathing isn't something that stands outside everything else. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's part of everything else that's going on with a person. And so I think... um, for practitioners who are working with breathing, it's really important that they, you know, know a person's history, understand their medical situation, understand what's gone on with them and work with 
breathing in a kind of a in a more individualized way and certainly not a rigid and fanatical mm. way so what what are the the things that sort of um the foundational things uh that we would consider to be um yeah. aspects of good breathing uh the things that apply to everyone so to speak yeah i think for most people do you know you want when for most people you need to move more mm-hmm. you know you need to relax more so you want to you want to be able to ha- be having a dynamic life with activity and rest yep. and then breathing that reflects that do you know and so for example you hear a lot about nasal breathing mm. you know you should always be nasal breathing and yes it's na- nasal breathing um fulfills so many functions it's really great the nose is the gateway to the whole breathing system it interacts with the brain it helps to you know regulate um you know the chemistry of breathing mm-hmm. to some extent yep. but um you don't want to even get fanatical about nasal breathing to tell you the truth do you know like because for example i've had people come to me who have been to see a breathing therapist and they've been told you should always always nasal breathe and they get so and they actually haven't got enough space to breathe do you mm. know or they have some issue there and so and they get really sort of fanatical and it makes them quite anxious and um sometimes what i've got to do is actually pull that back a little bit and go okay go 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 and deal with the causes of your nasal obstruction right, right. and then if you're still mouth breathing then let's work with the f- nasal functions if you if the muscles of breathing aren't working well like if the nasal muscles you know aren't opening the nose what's that all about mm. so that's related to the serotonergic system and things like that so um you know I do a lot of work in nasal rehabilitation and helping people, you know, learn to nasal breathe. Yeah. But sometimes I'm also just trying to get people off the um oversimplified ideas. And even with exercise, for example, do you know, um if you nasal breathe during exercise, you know, it will stop your airways drying and cooling. Some people find that their performance increases. But it also puts a bigger strain on the heart and it also um means that you're not performing at the very you, you don't get as even necessarily ventilation throughout the lungs right and um at the higher levels of exercise it's um not a bad idea to sometimes mouth breathe mm-hmm. you know given certain circumstances yep. So if you get someone who's who's exercising I just saw a paper today came out of Japan you know people who are exercising in high temperatures will hyperventilate when they're exercising if they breathe through their nose it actually has a protective effect on on that right right but um so you know there are sort of good functions but I just think that things become kind of trends mm. you know and sometimes people lose the balance and i guess that's why i'm sort of overstating <laughs> maybe you know like yeah nasal breathing's great but there are times when it's actually more appropriate and functional to breathe through your mouth mm. i've actually put things on um 
social media where people have been talking about, you know, the importance of nasal breathing in exercise. And I've just made a comment, you know, sometimes it's actually not not the best thing. Like sometimes there are situations where you take a few mouth breaths or you, you breathe through the mouth at high levels of exercise and mm -hmm. it appears to be actually, um, you know, to have some advantages. And they've actually like completely removed my post. Like you're not even allowed to say it. Yeah, right. You know, this. And I, I just think that we should be open to nuance mm. and we should be open to always challenging our ideas and exploring, you know, mm. um, what we believe to be truth. And, you know, that's, I guess I came to science later in my life, you know, because I was 50 when I started my PhD. And then I really learned what scientific process is and this right. sort of keeping an open and a curious mind and always being willing to 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 first of all putting you know the truth the truth first the questions first yeah and and yeah. science is very hard uh, and it's hard. And, and you have to be willing to put your ideas on the line yeah. to move forward and i think sometimes yeah. particularly when there's money on the line um for yeah. people uh they get lost in their own ideas and it becomes more of a you play a defensive game rather than a, a, a game of you know, <clears throat> discovery. It's just the way we are as humans, isn't yeah. it? Do you know this whole idea of confirmation bias and we protect our ideas and what we believe becomes part of our identity. And it's not necessarily the bad people who are like that. It's just the mm. way humans are. It's just how we operate. Yeah. And it's like, but what science does is it just minimizes confirmation bias it would never get rid of it mm. but um you know yeah yeah so so from your perspective what what are some telltale signs that someone might be struggling with their breathing uh, you know when you when you're when you're looking at yeah, someone and, and yeah. talking to them usually um they have unexplained breathing discomfort and they can't perform different functions, like they can't use their breath to calm themselves. Right. Um, they feel uncomfortable with their breathing and they're breathless out of proportion to their fitness and out of proportion to whatever pathology is going on. And in, their breathing is not able to shift from an active configuration to a relaxed configuration so meaning that when they're active you know they're not breathing sufficiently for an active person but when they're at rest they're not able to breathe like a relaxed person mm -hmm. so they've lost that sort of you know functionality yep. and variability and appropriateness of their breathing yeah so that would be one thing. Also, I mean, when I measure people, I take symptoms mm -hmm. um, and I use some validated symptom scales, included ones that I've developed myself, right. the self-evaluation of breathing questionnaire um, and the Nijmegen questionnaire, mm -hmm. you know, which has been around for 40 years. Yep. Um, then I will measure people's oxygen, carbon dioxide, breathing rate and heart rate at rest. Mm -hmm. And then I put and I, I take an average over about five minutes. Right. And if I'm seeing that the breathing is very unstable, that would be a sign. Um, and also if I'm seeing low levels of carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. or if the oxygen is low, or if I'm seeing that respiratory rate is very high and they're sitting there at rest, yeah. that would be a sign. Um, and then what I do is I check the breathing under certain challenges. So 
things like standing. I get them to do a sit to stand test. Mm -hmm. I would get them to um, even do a hyperventilation test yep. where they hyperventilate on purpose and then I look at how they recover. Yeah. So the whole idea being that functional breathing is appropriate and it, it, it adapts to stress in an appropriate way and then it recovers appropriately. So then I do those challenge tests. Mm -hmm. um, then I look at breathing pattern. Mm -hmm. I look at how they're breathing at rest. And then I look at how their breathing changes under certain postural challenges. Right. Okay. So I say, I see... What do they do when they slump? What do they do when they're upright? What happens to their breathing when they breathe deeply? What happens to their breathing when I ask them to breathe a particular way? And if they can't, if their breathing isn't appropriate, adaptive and responsive, I pick it up like that in the breathing yep. pattern test. Yep. And then I'll look at things like breath holding time right. and I'll look at how their um, breathing responds to breath holding time and... Uh, you know, and then I also look at their their airway. So I look at the nose. I look at how the nose performs at rest and under some challenges. And then I also look at their upper airway and their tongue. So that would be the sort of thing, you know. So it's kind of like I'm, I'm a, I'm a health professional. That's what I've done my whole life. So I'm more focused on um, sort of helping people who need to work with breathing as a tool for healing, where you know the situation's a bit more challenging yeah sort of really yeah. you know but um i also love using breathing oh the other thing i do is i i, I measure the strength of the diaphragm yes right so i look at the strength of the diaphragm and i look to see what pressures a person can generate right. during yeah. inspiration and expiration yeah and um whether that's appropriate for their you know age and physical size and gender and situation yep. so and then I plan what we're going to do about that mm -hmm. you know wh wherever I found something that's not quite right I try and optimize the breathing system yep. whether that's working through you know improving the nose improving the upper airway the tongue working with the diaphragm strength whether it means teaching them to relax their breathing and their breathing muscles or whether it means teaching them to have stronger breathing, to breathe more, yeah. or to really work with just getting the rhythms and the patterns of breathing more appropriate with what they're trying to, you know, heal from, recover yeah. from. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, quite a simple measure that I use quite regularly called the control pause. Yes. Um, it's very simple to do, so it's something that I like to I, utilize. I know it extremely well. Um, yeah. So how effective is that as you know as for someone with no equipment who, who might just want to you know yeah. find out a little bit more about where they're at how useful is that to yeah. sort of pick yeah. up on where people are at with their yeah breathing? sure that's a really um you know good question because the control pause comes from the Bateko method mm. so the control pause Bateko um developed this way of m assessing people's breathing looking at how long they could hold their breath after a normal exhale until they felt the first urge to breathe. So that's the potato control pause. Yeah. It's holding your breath at what's called functional residual capacity. So you breathe in, breathe out, and then you hold your breath. And <clears throat> potato's idea 
you know, and, 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 and actually he did research and he found a correlation for himself between the length of time that you could hold your breath and what the level of carbon dioxide was. So he said it's a measure of hyperventilation. And to some extent that's true. Mm. You know, people who are really bad hyperventilators, they often have no tolerance for the rise of CO2 because their whole chemistry of breathing has gone out of whack. And um, so we know that people who are bad hyperventilators often have these really short breath-holding time. But it's, it's not... I, one of my first bits of research during my PhD was actually to look at the control pores right. and to see what does the control pores correlate with. Mm. So I had 85 people and I measured their control pores, but I did it in a diff few different ways. So I looked at breath holding time until the first desire to breathe. Yep. Then I looked at breath holding time until the first involuntary movement mm -hmm. from the muscles of breathing. And then I looked at maximal breath holding time. Yep. And then I looked for correlations between resting carbon dioxide levels, between breathing pattern and between breathing symptoms. And what I found was that the strongest correlation was not with CO2, not with breathing symptoms, but with breathing pattern, with the state of the breathing muscles, right. with the diaphragm you know, with how the diaphragm is functioning. And, you know, what? so I went, oh, wow, okay, that's interesting. So then, you know, because I, pu I published this, you know, yeah. in journals, and, um, and then I had to go, as I'm writing it up, I'm going, oh, wow, you know, how do I, because when you write a paper, you know, you kind of, you do your introduction, you say, why did you ask this question, mm. and da-da-da-da, and then you describe your, method, your methods, and then you give your results, and then you've got to do a discussion, you've got to say, what's the meaning of this? So when you do your discussion, you've always got to put it in the context of all the other literature. And what I found was that they're actually in the physiological literature about breath-holding time, they go, yeah, the strongest... Um, determinant of breath holding time is actually feedback from the diaphragm to the brain. Yeah, right. Mm. That's a bit counterintuitive. I would have thought that CO2 would have been the thing that would have correlated yeah, with most. Yeah, it sort of it makes sense that it would because you would think, oh, when the person reaches their threshold, you know, the chemoreceptor sort of threshold that they would then let go of the breath. But it was really interesting because this is why it's so important to measure, mm. you know, and to test your assumptions um, because I'd been working 10 years, you know, with the control pores and sort of using that as a determinant of, you know, whether people were hyperventilating and how they improved from treatment. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, so I had to go, oh, that's really interesting. And, and then you find, oh, my God, there's this really interesting old research that was done with medical students, you know, back in the whatever it was, 20s or 30s or something, and they actually um, paralysed them with curare, you know, the drug curare, Amazon hunting right. poison. Yeah. You know, they put it on the tip of the arrow and then shoot the animal, the animal paralyzed can't breathe you know mm -hmm. can't run away so they actually gave curare to these medical students and they had them they artificially ventilated them and then they turned the ventilators off and they watched their oxygen and carbon dioxide levels so they watched the carbon dioxide levels rise and the oxygen drop 
And then they, you know, when things were looking dangerous, they turned the ventilators back on again. And then they asked them, at what point did you feel the urge to breathe? And they said, we never did. Interesting. (laughs) So with no feedback from respiratory muscles. Right. It's like it doesn't quite, you know, happen. So it's kind of complex. So look... When people's breathing isn't good, do you know, and, and ventilatory drive is too high, you know, the drive to breathe is like too switched on, like you would think of in a hyperventilator, then you might find, you know, then when ventilatory drive is high, then people have got no tolerance for not breathing. But ventilatory drive is high for lots of different reasons. You know, it can have to do with pathology. It can have to do with the state of the nervous system. It could be brainstem stuff. It can be, you know, the, the, uh, it can be the, um, the chemo reflex response, the CO2 thing, do you know? Mm. But it's certainly not telling you about the blood oxygen level, right. okay? It's certainly not telling you um, clearly and in a definite um, manner what the CO2 is. Although, you know, you can kind of, you can, in a, in a general way, you know, for the general public, you could sort of say, well, yeah, if your breath holding time is short and you work with training the breathing, it gets longer. And as you see things improve and function better, usually that breath holding time starts to go up. Mm. You know, it's like you've got better homeostasis. And so there's more tolerance for things shifting, you know, out of a slightly different range and the body can cope with um different signals without needing to immediately freak out and react you know mm. so that would be the yeah yeah that's fascinating because yeah. i i hadn't i would have thought that the the reflex was purely uh from a chemoreceptor point of view but it seems yeah. like a delicate dance between the, the physical feedback yeah and the chemical the, feedback we get back to these three dimensions biochemical yeah. biomechanical yeah. psychophysiological yeah mm. all right well Let's talk about the diaphragm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that's very interesting to me because it seems mm-hmm. to play uh, a diverse array of, of roles in the body, mm. not just as um, the primary breathing muscle, mm. but also for stabilization of, of mm. the lower back. And um, something that I found very interesting in the book was that people with chronic lower back pain had um, notable changes in their in how their diaphragm sat because it wasn't mm. stabilizing their lower back. Mm. Um, and it also seems to play a role. Um, di- breathing with the diaphragm or engaging the diaphragm with breathing um, in regulating the autonomic balance, so the, the balance between sort of stress and, and mm. relaxation, parasympathetic yeah. and sympathetic. So broadly speaking, what, what are the primary roles of the diaphragm in, in, from all those three um, points of view? Yeah. Yeah, well, the diaphragm, you know, just like massive muscle. Mm -hmm. For a start, it's two muscles. Right. Okay. Um, Embryologically, part of it develops with the gastrointestinal system. Right. And another part evolves with the respiratory... Evolves, it's not evolved, develops, okay, Um, with the respiratory system. So you've got the middle part of the diaphragm that actually um, is fed by the vagus, you know, which is the nerve that parasympathetic nerve to all the different organs of the body mm-hmm. so a function of the diaphragm is actually to you know control reflux yep 
and it functions to close that you know it's one of the sphincters for preventing reflux and then it's proprioceptive so it's um it's got a lot of proprioceptive fibers so it's it can evaluate you know the body in space um and the diaphragm you know clearly it's a respiratory muscle so it increases the the intrathoracic volume it drops the pressure so the air can come in so it does that so but it's also a postural muscle that responds to pretty much whatever you do if you raise your arm your diaphragm will fire if you go up on your toes it will fire if you um change you know body position the diaphragm responds because it's actually controlling um this the the the, the center of gravity in a way I suppose you could say, you know, uh, so it, it's an important regulator of intra-abdominal pressure, mm -hmm. which plays a key role, a key role in core stability. So yeah, it does all of that. Um, and when people are breathing, you know, predominantly with the, what's called the active configuration of breathing, which is with the upper chest mm -hmm. and in a vertical manner, you know, and they're doing that even when they're at rest. Often the rest of other postural muscles will be responding to that way of breathing and they actually don't generate such good intra-abdominal pressure to keep their core stability. And the diaphragm's also working together with the pelvic floor, the muscles at the front and the back of the body to regulate that intra-abdominal pressure. So that's kind of really important. The other thing too is that the diaphragm, you know, it can generate a lot of force. So it's important for generating the force that regulates the homeostasis in the cardiovascular system. So it helps to regulate cardiac vagal control of the heart and blood pressure regulation in the body and also drives and regulates probably fluid pressures in many places in the body, including um, cerebrospinal fluid. Right. Perhaps, you know. But certainly um, it's, it's important for um, moving fluids as well as air and also making um, the core stability. Yep, yep. Um, I, I always found it very interesting um, to think that, you know, Growing up, I probably never used to breathe with my diaphragm. Uh, I grew up with asthma uh, and pr and probably uh, mouth breathing a lot. And it's taken me a long time to realize that, um, you know, probably my my diaphragm my diaphragm engagement was probably not very good. Um, and reading in the book, there were um, poses like the beach pose um, where you you know like lie, lie yeah, back right. with your hands behind yeah. your head. And it, it seems to automatically open get you breathing your, into your, your lower down into your belly. Yeah, and I thought that was fascinating that just a few simple movements could sort of unlock. When you say the book, you mean Leon Chaitow's Recognizing and Treating Breathing Disorders, don't that's you? That's the one. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that's that beach pose is one that's used by physios, mm -hmm. you know, physiotherapists. It's a great position. Um, it's nice because you're immobilizing the, the shoulders and chest. And it, it, it's helping you use the lower rib cage yep. to breathe and the belly to breathe. 
But the thing about that is just that when pushing the belly in and out isn't necessarily breathing with your diaphragm. Yeah. You know that, yeah, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Because your diaphragm it attaches to the lower six ribs. And if you keep your belly firm, if you're still, if you've got movement at the ribs, the sides and the back, that's still diaphragm breathing. Mm. Like it doesn't have to be your belly going in and out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also people with asthma. Actually, asthma, that's a really good example. So you get someone with asthma and they've learnt to breathe against resistance. Okay, the resistance of airway obstruction. And um, they're more sensitive to the rise of CO2 and also the feeling of airway resistance. And so they can overexpress, you know, an active configuration of breathing. Like that's kind of the way I'd think about it. Right. So it's like, oh, okay, overexpressing the active configuration of breathing. And the Bateko method was most well known for helping asthma. I was very, very successful for that. Yeah. And, um, and I always wondered why, you know, like Bateko always felt that it was hyperventilation. And he actually had this story where he said asthma wasn't a disease, it was just a defence mechanism against hyperventilation. Yep. Which clearly is not the case, mm. can't be. You know, because there are so many different types of asthma and there's a genetic component and, you know, not every asthmatic is hyperventilating as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. And so on. So, um, but it's really interesting because original Bottego method, you know, as taught by Bottego when I was there in the 90s and how he wrote about it because we translated his works from Russian to English, do you know, and he says, okay, so the whole of my method is relax, reduce your breathing by relaxing the muscles of respiration until you feel a light lack of air. So his whole breathing is actually breathing at lower volumes. And that's really interesting because a lot of people who have had something like asthma or an obstructive lung disease, they learn to, they get greedy for breathing in and they don't breathe out much. And so they get hyperinflated. And I really think that Bateko didn't just work through hyperventilation. I think that it worked through hyper, through reducing hyperinflation right. as well. Plus, in the Bateko method, particularly as it was taught originally, you know, the way we all learnt it back in the early 90s, it was all about welcoming the lack of air, <laughs> enjoying the feeling of being slightly breathless yep. and learning, putting a different cognitive frame around that so that suddenly it's like, oh, no, this is good. Feeling a lack of air is good because it's actually um, CO2, which is a bronchodilator and it's giving me more oxygen and it's making everything better. So people all of a sudden kind of like something changes in their brain about how they're approaching breathlessness. Yep. So it's like because I was very interested in the Bateko method because it was one of the things I worked with so intensively for 10 years. And then it was like, oh, wait a minute, the Bateko method even is working on three dimensions. It's working on the biochemical, the biomechanical and the psychophysiological because it's helping hyperinflation, it's helping hyperventilation, you know, um, and it's also working with that, you know, the fear 
of not being able to get air, even unconscious fears of not being able to get enough air, which makes it a really interesting technique. But it does mean if you're working in an individualised way, if you're doing a proper full assessment, you can really get what what the main thing is for a person and then you can really direct, you know, your treatment to them. And it's interesting because I was working with someone just yesterday, you know, um, who developed, had had asthma as a child, had it really under control, and then as an adult it came on with a vengeance right. really badly. He was hospitalised and for long periods and repeatedly and he started working with the Bateco method and um, quite a strict form because there are different varieties, you know, different people doing different things. It's kind of morphed, changed over the years. But he was working with a, you know, a, a stricter variety of reducing the volume, you know, breathing less, breathing less, breathing yep. less, yep. and um, and working on extending his breath holds, and um, just really wasn't improving at all. And then he's in hospital, and then he realised, wait a minute, what would happen if I stretched out my lungs and breathed more? And he did that, and within two hours he was out of hospital. Interesting. Because he actually needed something else, do you know? Yeah. And so then he said, oh, okay, like... I want to work with you and just sort of tweak this. So we went, okay, well, let's work Let's work with the active configuration. Like he'd been so inhibiting his own breathing. Right. But for him that was not the balance. Like he needed to have a bit of the other stuff. Yeah. So, you know, and I certainly don't have all the answers. Like I'm learning all the time from patients and from research and other people's research. And, um, you know, I'm just, I learned so much just from measuring, seeing if things improve, if they don't improve, ask why, you know, yeah. try and problem solve yeah. and think it through from first principles using as sound information as I can get, you know, based on the scientific literature. Yeah. Because for me it's not about the therapy, it's about the patient. Mm. It's about the person and their problem and their suffering and what needs to be done, you know, for them. So, yeah, mark of a great practitioner. Well, you know, trying, <laughs> trying to do a reasonable job, but yeah. Well, it sounds like um, you're taking the most nuanced approach that I've heard, and um, I'm incredibly grateful that you've given me some of your time. Um, I, I've I've learned quite a lot, and even even um, you know reading. Um, quite a bit about this. Uh, this has been really enlightening for me as well. So oh, great. I can't wait to share this and uh, hopefully we can keep in touch and uh, I can continue to learn from you because I think there's, yeah. there's a lot that we can, because everyone's different, there's yeah. a lot we can um, yeah. learn about how to treat everyone uh, yeah. on their level. Yeah. Because what, I, what I'd really like to see, I, I think that everyone should have a daily breathing practice and if, if you're reasonably healthy, you know, just a simple breathing practice that makes you feel good is fantastic because yep. you're really helping your mind your nervous system and um you're helping your breathing to regulate other body systems so really in favor of that but in people who are really having breathing difficulties i'm really sort of hoping you know with the rest of my working life to to kind of in, get a greater recognition of you know a sort of um, comprehensive, you know, nuanced and individualised approach to breathing retraining for those people. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. 
Thank yeah. you so much for your time. Yeah, thank um, you. We will keep in touch. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep up with Rosalba's work, I've put some links to her platforms in the episode notes and a link to the book that we referenced during the podcast as well. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify and YouTube and you can leave up to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a simple no-cost way to support my work and help me reach more listeners. Please feel free to leave comments on my YouTube channel as I do try to read through as many as I can. I've also put links to all of my social media platforms in the episode notes if you'd like updates about the podcast, information about health, or you'd just like to reach out to me. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Take care.